Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. And our special guest this time, Mr. John Palmer. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science and the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 50 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And John, what are you known for? Ah, water, And How to Brew, an amazing book, the one that I recommend to everybody, uh, even over our books, Drew. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'll live. (laughs) We're back with part two of our question and answer episode. And uh, before we get into doing all of that, please take a listen to the messages from the people who make this show possible. Yeast yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among brewmasters' favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272 PC North American Lager and 2352 PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. 
We have a slew of questions to go through today, so we're going to get it kicked off with questions about fermentation. Coming from our old friend Dave Taylor the Skeptic, a man who is just as skeptical about things as I am, and I love it. So uh, let's dive into Dave's question. Number one, is pressure fermentation all that great? No. Uh, John? Yeah, I don't I don't believe in it, but um, people can make it work for them. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you know, look, the, the real goal of pressure fermentation, right, reduced esters, allowing you to, to speed up fermentation, turn your lagers around a lot faster. That makes absolute perfect sense for a big commercial brewery. I don't understand the point of it for homebrewers. Yeah, and I would add to that that the reason big commercial brewers do it is because the hydrostatic pressure in the tall conicals causes ester repression at what would be the normal fermentation temperature at yeast. So to bring the beer back up to expectations, they increase the uh, temperature of the fermentation. That you know, relationship was grabbed onto by homebrewers saying, oh, we can ferment lagers warm. You know, kind of they taking the bug and making it into a feature, uh, which is, you know, it's basically true, but that's not, you know, that wasn't like the real purpose of it. Yeah, you know, and as homebrewers often do, they take things not intended for them and try and make it apply to them. Yeah. I made up my mind after uh, we heard Chris White speak uh, when we were in Australia. He did a presentation on pressure fermentation there uh, using data generated by John Blickman. And what it came down to for me was that it's a pretty finicky technique. You have to match yeast strain, pressure, temperature. And to me, there was there were a lot of things about it that just were too uncertain, and it just didn't seem to be worth it. Now, there are lots of homebrewers who swear by it, and I have to question it. But, you know, if they like it, more power to them. It's their choice. Okay, next question from Dave. When's the last time you fermented a Pastoriana strain in the mid-60s and not under pressure? Last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly, Dave, but uh, I've done it a number of times, and no big deal. Third part of Dave's question, he says, several parter, and geez, I guess most of these are several parters. Why is cold IPA fermented warm? Is this really all that different from regular IPA? From IPL, do we really need yet another iteration of very hoppy beers? How many months until this fad dies? <laughs> well, I mean, so far it seems to be lasting for more than a year. But uh, the other thing I will say about cold IPA is I still don't entirely know what it is, and I don't know if people have actually agreed on it. That is probably true that people haven't really agreed on it. In my mind, from listening to the original discussion on MBA podcast on it, um, it is a cream ale brewed to IBA, IPA hoppiness. And cream ale, of course, is a style. goes back to 1850, 1870 area, era, um, more like, I guess, 1870s on, um, where, you know, uh, lager yeast had been introduced to the United States, 
and brewers were experimenting with lager yeast. Sometimes they didn't have, you know, cold fermentation available for it, so they brewed it warm. In other cases, brewers were using their regular ale yeast, but trying to brew it colder to imitate the lager uh, character of that, of the you know, adjunct lager beers that were becoming very popular all throughout the, the latter half of the 1800s. So it's it's a hoppy cream ale. I assume it's stronger than a cream ale? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're taking a cream ale, which would be, you know, 4 to 5%, and brewing it to a, like an IPA, so 5 6 7%. But the, basically the same ingredients and everything. Yeah, yeah. It just With cream ale, of course, you have that, 20 to 30 percent adjunct uh, level. Right. That's where I was getting. You know, and I would say that there are going to be a lot of people who will disagree with that based on how they perceive it. And I think that goes back to what Drew said about, you know, there there are a lot of different um, ideas of what it is. The guy who invented it may have one idea, but then a lot of the people who brew it have other ideas about what it is. Yeah. Uh, which to me kind of leads into the how many months until this fad dies. Uh, I think it will die when people discover there's really no reason for this beer. I mean, you know, it's just kind of like everything else. It doesn't offer anything special. But Well, I, no, I would kind of argue that, Denny, because... Okay. The if you look at if you look at typical West Coast IPA or let's just say typical IPA, all malt, uh, right. high hopping, and you know six seven percent alcohol, and then you look at double IPA. Now you're looking at you know eight nine percent alcohol, um, you know all malt except roughly ten percent. Uh, refined sugar added to it right. to lighten the body. Right. So here we have a, a an IPA that is generally lower alcohol than the double IPA, but lower body uh, and a lighter flavor than a typical West Coast IPA. So, and it's not a hazy IPA. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I think I think it. I think it definitely has a niche uh, in the current portfolio um, as an adjunct, uh, you know, hoppy uh, beer style of about, you know, 6% ABV. Okay. I will accept that. And I guess maybe I just need to try a few more of them and uh, really grasp that difference better. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I was never keen on hazies until I had a couple of really good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still haven't, so. Okay, Dave's next question is, what are some new dry yeast strains you've tried? How were the results? I think the last new one I tried was the Verdant IPA strain. And, yeah. of course, remember I did that the screwball thing where I used it to make a mild instead of an IPA. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was tasty. <laughs> But I'm I'm really curious to try out some of the new stuff that's appeared because I forget was it Lalamond or Fermentus that just released uh, the first commercially dried Brett, right? Yeah. So that's oh, yeah. yeah that's interesting that's developed, but I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. What about you guys? I haven't tried anything new. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm 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 the same man. I haven't tried anything new uh, for a while. 
because I kind of brew the same beers over and over, and so it just doesn't really uh, – there, there's no incentive to try something new, although I probably should just for the heck of it. Yeah. The one, the one new thing I have tried, which I didn't brew myself, but I tried one of the new alcohol, uh, low alcohol or alcohol-free beers um, that was oh, – shoot, I forgot the name of the brewery off the top of my head. But the, the yeast was uh, supplied by Kristen Hansen, and it is one of the uh, – what is it? The uh, non-maltose, non-crabtree-effect yeast uh, begins with a P. Should have written this down for you all. Anyway. That's uh, <laughs> okay. But, it, uh, yeah, uh, it, was, it for an alcohol-free beer – it tasted like beer. Wow. So I had, I had an alcohol-free IPA, which was decently hoppy and had uh, beer flavor. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was less than half percent alcohol. And, uh, yeah, um, really uh, better beer flavor in terms of, you know, the ester and, and uh uh, background flavors than I've had in other alcohol-free beers, such as oh, that's encouraging. Zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's I, really encouraging. I, I I did mess with the the Falcons last month, and I served them non-alcoholic beer for the beer tasting, and still the athletic beers were the ones that that won out. Uh, John, were you, you said from Hanson? Were you thinking, just looking real quick, uh, their Smart Bev near? Is, uh-huh. is their their low alcohol maltose negative yeast, and then of course uh, Fermentus has uh, what the Saf Brew LAO one, which reminds mm-hmm. me I need to I need to get some of that because I I, I want to try it. Yeah, oh yeah, that one too. Yeah, now this one I, I finally pull up here. It's the uh, Picia Cluveri, um, Cluveri species. Right, a pick, a pick of yeast. Yeah, I, I do, and listeners have listened to us talk about this multiple times. But I'm, I'm finding the whole movement of developing sort of new low and non-alcoholic uh, beer tech to be really interesting, uh, and it's come a lot farther than uh, than I would have expected in a very short time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, I can. I mean, we drink, we. The three of us tend to drink beer because we very much like the beer's flavor. Mm-hmm. We don't, right. and we will drink it in situations where we don't have to worry about the alcohol content. But um, when there are, you know, if we are somewhere out or we need to drive home or something, it would be nice to have an actual beer tasting and a beer. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to think. There was. Some uh, non-alcoholic craft brewery that's relatively new, they used a term I'd never heard it before, so I don't know if they invented it or if it's a, a more general term. But they invented or they used the term uh, zebra striping, hmm. and their whole argument, like as a place for where non-alcohol or low-alcohol beer falls, is like the in-between beverage. You know, it's a perfectly yeah. a perfectly normal thing. You have your pint of IPA, you have a non-alcoholic beer. You have another pint of IPA, and you sort of stripe in the uh, the non-alcoholic oh. beer, and you know, kind of keep the evening going, shall we say? 
Yeah, yeah. So, and I will admit, it is kind of nice to have something in your hand while, while you're talking to people. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, uh, I don't know if this happens to you, John, and I know it happens to Nate, it happens to me all the time. You're at a, like a beer festival or something, and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, man, you got to try this thing. And they, they hand you something, and it's like, yeah, that's my 18% barley wine. It's designed to, you know, to knock yeah. people out. Like, oh, thanks. Yeah. That's the, reason why, that's the reason why I brew a mile for all those festivals, so I always have something in my, in my hand. Uh, there you go. But that's gone completely off topic. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, what? <laughs> um, all right, so Dave's next uh, question was, are enzymes super useful or overdone? Uh, what are some other newly developed additives, and how slash when are they useful? Uh, enzymes are not useful to me. Well, I mean, other than the ones that naturally occur, I, I have no need to add extra enzymes right. in my brewing. And, of course, the, the big ones I think that we see people using all the time are, like, Clarity Firm. Uh, you know, some people for the actual intended purpose of clarifying the beers, but a lot of people to do sort of gluten-reduced beers. I uh, know a couple of people in the club who do that. Right. Uh, that's uh, that's the one I see used most often. Well, and, of course, with the brewed IPA thing that happened, uh, we did have an episode where I talked to Jeremy from Eagle Rock where he talked about how they were using enzymes, particularly in their lagers, to sort of drive down the final fermentation uh, gravities. So, but are they are they super useful at a home brewing level? That's the question. I mean, we're if talking you about. if you want, I mean, if you want to do the gluten reduced, yes. And I mean, if you're really trying to go for a dry gravity, sure. But again, it's with intention, not with, you know, not like how we talk about like using something like Brutan B or even yeast nutrient, where it's just, oh, that's a good thing to use. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If if you're using it for an, an intended effect, absolutely. Yeah. I think also if you are attempting to brew, to brew a sorghum you know, or truly gluten-free beer, then exogenous enzymes are uh, almost required uh, in terms of the, you know, the mashing temperatures and gelatinization temperatures of sorghum. Um, you know, if, but again, you're doing it for a very specific purpose. In general home brewing, Bales and lagers, I don't think there's any any need to use them, even if you're trying to brew, you know, uh, American adjunct lager. Yep. Uh, you you can do that perfectly fine without this exogenous enzymes. Yeah, so once again, useful tool, but uh, only when you actually really need it. Yeah, in general, probably you're not going to need them. Right. Okay, and number six from Dave, what excites you about the hobby right now? What doesn't and why? And let's try and keep this under an hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's tackle it first. Uh, Roundtable, what excites you about the hobby right now, Denny? What excites me about the hobby? That people seem to be getting back to uh, simpler ideas. There, There is a, you know, there is a, a, a divide there between people who are going simpler and people like the pressure fermentation crowd, you know, who uh, feel like more is better. Uh, I'm excited to see more people going simpler. I'm in, excited to see uh, the return of more people wanting to drink beer-flavored beer. What doesn't excite me, uh, all the people who get all their information about brewing uh, from questionable sources, um, and I'll just leave it at that. All right. John, what excites you? Um, I, I'm always excited to try 
new styles, uh, new fruits in beers uh, in you know Central and South America. Um, you know, flavors that I've just never been exposed to before. Um, the I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I mean, uh, certainly within the last you know five years, uh, the preponderance of uh, guava flavored um, uh, set of kind of Rena sours is is become very common, mm-hmm. and uh, those are extremely refreshing. Um, and oddly enough, on the next episode of the Brew Files, I'll be talking to a guy about a guava flavored beer. Ah, <laughs> there you go. So, you know, I think, I think you know, I, I, I fully agree with Denny, you know, beer-flavored beer, but when you can uh, truly uh, incorporate a complementary fruit flavor into a beer and make something that, you know, is greater than the sum of its parts in terms of refreshment, you know, that, that, is, that is very exciting. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I the things that don't excite me are when I mean it's always good for homebrewers to take an idea, run with it, see where it leads them. Um, I mean, you know, heck, that's how we all started in the hobby, you know, and we built our own equipment and we did various things, um, you know, like champagne beer, for example, but. Uh, then there's things like pressure fermentation, where they take a solution that was engin- you know, that was created to solve a different problem, and try to um, apply it to a different problem, and call it good be- without really looking at the whole picture. I guess you know, and and as we've beaten that horse to death, I mean, it's like. You know, be aware that anytime you are stressing your yeast to achieve one effect, you're still stressing your yeast, and that's going to have deleterious effects on the rest of your beer. And then for me, I would say what's exciting me about the hobby is all the toys and techniques we get to play with now. You know, all the new hop varieties, all that sort of fun stuff. The new yeast strains are coming up. Yeah. Uh, that That excites me because that's learning, and that's fun. Uh, what doesn't excite me is anything that involves the word smoothie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although that seems to be much more at the professional level and much less at the homebrew level. So. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. Our next question. Yes, we actually are moving on from Dave. Our, <laughs> our next question comes from, from uh, Drew, not me, uh, who wrote it on the AHA form. Have you guys played with any of the lacto-producing yeast? If so, what's your take? Has Drew tried making a sour saison, a poor man's lambic? I did a Philly sour plus butt plus plums that came out interesting. Not quite uh, Tilquin, but interesting. Let's answer the first one first. Uh, I have played with the Philly sour, just like you, you did. I thought it was really interesting, but again, at the homebrew level, I look at it and I kind of go... I don't know if I need it. You guys? I have not experimented with them. Yeah, and I don't I don't like sour beers enough to brew one and have a whole bunch of it around. Uh I enjoy certain ones occasionally, but uh I'm not really interested in brewing one, so I haven't played with any of that stuff. Yeah, and 
I'll be frank about my taste. When I do like sourness and beers, I prefer sort of the whole mixed culture sourness. Yeah, you know, so the sour plus all the other activities that come around with it. The things like Philly sour and whatnot are interesting, but they're very much designed to generate lactic acid without a lot of other stuff. And so to me, a lot of those come off just like the kettle sours do. They come off, a, you know, sort of very one note, which can be good if used in an appropriate fashion. Like uh, John, you just mentioned the Katarina oh. sours. Uh, so it can be good, but I find in general, I prefer a more complex mixed culture, uh, flavor. And even then I find a lot of times when people do that, uh, that sort of approach, they end up pushing the sourness too hard and you lose yeah. out on the other flavors. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, too, too many times you get sour beers that are all about the sour alone. Yep. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, so Drew's other question was, uh, What's your take on the state of brewing media, especially podcasting? When I started in this hobby in 2019, it seemed like there were a handful of shows and I could pretty much keep up with the release schedules. Now I feel like I have to do some serious pruning to keep my podcast queue manageable. And even with that, it's growing faster than I can listen to it. Has the landscape changed that much or was I just oblivious to it years ago? Uh, I will say, yes, the landscape has changed a lot. There are a lot more podcasts out there and a lot less written media. Hmm. Yeah, given, um, given where all of us started, it's and it's not just in brewing or home brewing. It's everywhere. There, are, there are more podcasts. Everybody's doing a podcast these days. Uh, Michelle Obama has a new one coming out. So yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, things have changed, and that's just the way it is. And that's why you need to keep listening to the good ones like this. There you go. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah I mean, because I'm, I mean, honestly, the the first one I can think of was all the brewing network stuff. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and for a long while they, they kind of had the market all to themselves and yeah, now you can't go and swing a, uh, swing a fermenter without having a podcast. Well, I mean, there was, there was, uh, uh, James and Steve mm-hmm. basic brewing back then. They've been around a really long time, longer than we have even, yep. uh, you know, I, Brad, I think has been around for a really long time with beer Smith. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's now there's like new ones popping up all the time. And uh, YouTube so, too. Yep. Yeah, right. So I would just say don't feel like you gotta listen to everything. Pick ones you like, pick ones that are helpful to you, and then listen to those and spend the rest of your time making beer. Yeah, you don't have to listen to uh, all the podcasts, you just have to listen to ours. Um, <laughs> yeah, you should buy books yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, and books. Well, so yeah, I, I I alluded to it, but given our proclivities and how we all started in the media aspect for beer, I will say that yeah, book sales are have cratered, and all of that wonderful beer media that we had, like beer magazines and whatnot, almost all of those are gone now, uh, yeah. because print media, uh, print media, particularly print niche media, has sort of taken a death spiral. Mm-hmm. So. That's not fun. Go read a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But before you read a book, we're going to take a quick break here and uh, shoot you a few more messages, and we'll be right back with questions about technique. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. 
with an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey everybody, thank you for sticking around. We are here today with John Palmer as a very special guest, helping us answer some questions, and we're going to get into some questions about brewing technique. The first one comes from Dempsey Smith via Facebook. Dempsey says, when sitting down to create a recipe from scratch for the first time, what is the smallest increment you use for specialty grains? How about hops? I'd assume a 10-gallon finished volume batch because that's what I'd brew, but a 5-gallon philosophy is the same, if only half as grand. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. But uh, So, uh, John, why don't you start? What's the smallest increment you use for bar- various ingredients? Uh, the smallest I go is 2% of the total grist bill. So, um, yeah, you know, if assuming a grain bill of 10 pounds, that would be, you know, uh, Two tenths of a pound, uh, less than a quarter pound. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, I, I when I create a recipe for the first time, I'm usually working in uh, fixed percentages: two, five, ten for the specialty grains. Two percent being for an accent malt. Ten uh, percent being for a characteristic um, specialty malt uh, for that style. And, you know, five, of course, being uh, something you don't want uh, quite as much of. But, uh, and I'll sometimes, you know, use, let's say in the case of crystals, I'll use two different crystals in half amounts versus a single crystal in the full amount. Right. What about hops? Um, yeah, hops, I, 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 I've, Finally switched. To, I'm I'm brewing small batches these days, two and a half gallon batch size, because I just 
beer has become so available at the grocery store that you know I'm not I I'm not drinking my own brew as much as I'm just grabbing a six from you know Russian River or what have you at the store and bringing it home. Um, so yeah, I'm brewing small batches, and so I'm doing maybe ten gram uh, additions. It's kind of like the the base, the smallest I'll start with. Right, right. How about you, Drew? Uh, depends upon the grain, but two ounces generally in a five-gallon batch for roasted malts. And then everything else is pretty much starts at a quarter pound and goes up from there. Um, and we'll get into recipe design in the next question, but, uh, yeah, I'll tell you how I tend to stack things. So, yeah, two ounces if it's a roast malt, and then everything else generally starts at about a quarter pound. For hops, I think the last time we talked, I, I won the record for the least amount of hops in a beer. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And so for me, in a five-gallon batch, that was an eighth of an ounce. But a lot of times, what I'll, I'll I'll usually start about a quarter ounce. I would say that for me, the answer is how long is a piece of string? <laughs> um, you know, uh, it it just depends on too many things. Uh, in general, I will keep grains down to maybe a quarter of a pound, but it, it really depends on the grain. Uh, for my porter recipe, I use a single ounce of, uh, of uh, black patent malt in it for, for a little bit of bite, and, but I, that's probably below 1%. So, you know, it, it kind of just depends. Uh, hops, uh, for hops, I just kind of like round off to something close, and I look at the... Uh, the IBU values, uh, I would say maybe like for hops, I'll go down to an increment of a, of a tenth of an ounce, or maybe even a little bit less. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't worry about, I don't worry about getting exactly on because close enough is good enough, but, uh, I'll, I'll go down there to what I need. Okay. That sounds like an answer. <laughs> our next question comes from our good buddy, Sam Loader. Uh, who wrote it on Facebook, and this is the reason why I said I'd talk about recipe design next. What is the process you use for developing a new recipe for a classic style versus something experimental? Denny? Um, I pull out an old favorite book, the Seven Barrels Brewing Book by Greg Noonan, which I don't believe is in print anymore. But I have found that that has some of the best basic recipes around. So I'll take a look through there at like a recipe for the style. I'll take a look at the BJCP guidelines. Uh, I'll take a look. I mean, if it's a Belgian beer, of course, I'll always refer to brew like a monk. Um, you know, for other beers, I, I'll refer to other books. So what I kind of do is average out all the information I get, not the recipes themselves, but the average information, kind of like this grain and about this amount, and this one goes with that and stuff like that. Uh, so that that is my basic approach, and I guess that that's more for the classic styles. For my experimental beers, they always start with something classic. You know, like when I do the the mushroom beers, those are always always starting with a, a classic style. So I don't, you know, I don't really go out on a limb with something totally that I haven't ever done before. John? Yeah, I very much like Denny. Um, if I'm for brewing a classic style, I I go to the book Brewing Classic Styles. and <laughs> Imagine that, you, would you? Yeah, 
<laughs> I see what Jamil did, and you know, and I and I kind of riff from there. Um, you know, uh, I'll also go to you know recipe databases like on Brew Your Own's website or or uh, Beersmith, and look what other people have done to brew that style. If, you know their recipes, which you know which speci especially malts they're using, which hops they're using. Um, Look, you know, looking at total IBUs and where they're, where they're, where in the process they're doing the hop additions. Are they doing hop steeps and so on? You know, and kind of just as you say, average all that information to make my decisions on how I want to approach the recipe. Um, yeah, I really, I, I don't, I don't know that I do. True experimentation. Um, I'm always taking something uh, like a, a classic style and merely adding an element to it. Um, you know, whether it's a Belgian double with cherry juice um, or something like that, or taking another style like a porter and souring it. You know, it's 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 experimental, but it's not really that radical. It's not. You know, it's not pie in the sky, you know, uh, completely out of the box kind of brewing. So you're not making a pickle beer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which has been a trend, which is sort of weird. Yeah. Um, and then for me, I've, I've talked openly in the past that I tend to use templates. Uh, that's how I refer to it. Like I have sort of a standard pale ale recipe. I have a standard IPA recipe. I have a standard saison recipe. And everything that I do is a riff off of that. If it's something that I don't have a template for, then just like y'all, I, I go and I dig up research and take a look around and then think hard about what those grains say to me. And yeah. then think about like, okay, well, that's, I see that everybody's using, you know, a lot of Munich in this, but I don't really like that much Munich, so I'm going to cut it down. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the only other piece I will tell you about designing something experimental yeah, you know, I kind of like how John, you're talking about adding, like, say, cherry juice to a double. Is I try and think ahead to what flavor impact I'm expecting, and make sure that what's in the base recipe isn't going to conflict. Yeah, yeah, I, I call that taste imagination. I kind of like try to taste the beer in my head before I start developing a recipe. Well, it's certainly a hell of a lot faster than brewing. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, if I am doing something experimental, I will always try and make sure that. I have a way to add whatever the experimentation flavor is, like assuming that we're talking about doing something experimental in terms of flavor. I try and structure the recipe in such a way that I'm brewing a normal beer that I then add something to. Uh, so that way the brewing process itself, I can generate a good beer and then I can understand what the flavor impact is going to be when I add the thing. Right. And then right. that way I don't like, it's part of the reason why I don't like doing like, things that are kettle additions because then you have no concept of, Oh, you know, that chili pepper I added, that was too much chili pepper. And now I have five gallons of beer that I can't drink. Yeah, exactly. So I was, whenever I, whenever I see people asking about adding things to the kettle or uh, to the fermenter, I'm always like, you know, make a real effort to add flavorings as late in the process as you possibly can. Yeah, that way you can you can predict what's actually going to be the right impact, and you can yeah, and you taste, and you don't have to kind of like 
you know, randomly shoot an arrow in the dark uh, in terms of hoping to hit a bullseye in terms of the flavor impact. So there you go. That's it's Sam's question. Next question should be real quick uh, from Why Not Brew Some on the, on the AHA forum. Any reason not to shorten homebrew boil times to 30 minutes? Yeah. Uh, uh, not, not necessarily, unless you want to make hop additions at, uh, at other times. But, uh, you know, I have experimented with doing a 20-minute mash and 20-minute boil and didn't have any problems with doing that. John? Um, I, from the standpoint that brewing is cooking, if you are making a traditional style that uh, comes from a longer boil, then I feel you probably should do the longer boil if you're trying to perfectly emulate the, you know, the Maillard reaction, the melanoidin character mm-hmm. of that style. Um, yeah, you can, you can cut corners, you can shorten the boil, you can make informed decisions to, to move away from that. But in general, I, the boil is where a lot of your flavors are developed. So, you know, as long as you know what you're doing and are planning what you're doing, then, yeah, you know, adjust adjust the boil however you want. But be aware, that's where you're generating lots of flavors for your beer. Yeah, and I would say as long as you're doing it with intention, go for it. Um, but, yeah, you do lose, like, concentration. So, particularly if you're trying to make a bigger beer, it's going to be kind of hard to do that in 30 minutes. Part of the reason why I don't think I've ever switched to doing exclusively shorter boils is it also screws up my rhythm. (laughs) It screws up the rhythm of my brew day. And, yeah, like, because I use that hour period of time that I know the beer is boiling to do a lot of different things, like, you know, making sure the fermenters are set, doing this. Yeah, and it's a little bit like, well, as John said, like cooking, where, you know, I know how to make a bolognese because I've made a bolognese 900 times and I don't even have to think about the timing on it, right? So right. with brewing, part of the reason I, I have never really switched over to 30-minute boils is because I have that timing built into my head and my muscle memory. And every time I try and deviate from it, something inevitably goes wrong because I'm a dummy. <laughs> yeah, and when when I do the shorter boils too, it's for styles where the boil doesn't really – uh, you know, doesn't become a significant player in the flavor profile. Uh, you know, I'll use it like for a, a pale ale or a triple or something like that. Yep. There you are. All right. Next question comes from Nate, Massachusetts, who emailed us to say, who emailed us to ask, my question is based on something I thought I picked up while listening to the most recent podcast regarding cold crashing. Denny, I believe you mentioned that after fermentation is fully finished, you stick a solid bung in and drop the temp to avoid O2 pickup. Is that correct? I don't recall you saying that. Uh, I've said that online, uh, and I might have said it on the show, too. Okay. Uh, I enjoy thinking out of the box, and I've heard a range of solutions to avoid O2 pickup, none of which I've really adapted for various reasons. Assuming you do the solid bung thing when you transfer to a keg via the spigot on your fermenter, do you remove the bung to promote flow of liquid, or do you leave it in, open the spigot, and have a slower rate of transfer? I'm going to give this a go next batch because, hey, why not? Thanks again. So I think, Denny, you and I both use the Grandfather Chronicles, so I at least throw the CO2 pressure kit on. Yeah, I, I do too now that now that I can. Uh, before that, though, I would just simply 
remove the bung and transfer. Uh, my theory about, uh, about aeration, oxygenation is, uh, as we discussed last time, you do the best you can and then you stop worrying about it. Jonathan? Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I completely understand what he's saying. Um, what he, what he's saying is that uh, when I cold crash, I, I seal the fermenter. You know, like I, I stick a solid bung yeah. into it, whether it was a bucket, a carboy, uh, whatever. And then he wants to know uh, when I transfer the beer out of that fermenter, do I remove the bung, which will let uh, oxygen in but promote a a faster flow, or do I leave oh. the bung in and just go with the slow flow? Um, okay, okay. Well, a I never cold crash my fermenter. <laughs> um, B, when I do transfer, it is generally open, uh, would, would be bung open, to a purged keg. Wow. Um, yep. So, you know, unless you have agitation at the surface, you're not getting much oxygen pickup. And yeah, if and I'm transferring to a purge keg, and I am doing, you know, the dip to fill. So you know, the beer is going in at the bottom, and you know, slowly rising. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm trying to avoid, uh, you know, agitation. Um, so yeah, I, I've never had uh, staling problems. You know, where you know, short of six months. You know, I was just thinking. Um, Closed transfer and pressure fermentation are the two things that I see homebrewers most hung up on these days. And all three of us are kind of going, yeah, not that big a deal. Well, I think I think right. also all three of us have been brewing for a very long time. So Yeah, have- yeah, that's true. I, I, I see a lot of people uh, who get hung up on these techniques because they've never really uh, given anything else a shot to see what happens. So Yeah, I mean, I think true. for me, yeah. a lot of times, even though... Like I, I go into purged kegs as well, but a lot of times I don't even do the the dip tube fill. I'll just crack it, crack open the keg, cover it with foil, and drop the uh, a spigot line all the way down to the bottom. Uh, largely, largely because <laughs> right, I don't right. want to deal with anything getting caught in the poppets. Um, but yeah, I, I do the pressure transfer transfer kit just because it's faster. Uh, and then otherwise, if I am cold crashing, sometimes I don't even bother like doing a solid bung, I might do a full foam bung, right? Uh, to mm-hmm. plug it and cover it. And if I am doing an open transfer without the pressure kit, then I just pop the bung and uh, cover the opening with foil because I yeah. love foil. And you'll suck in a little bit of air then, but as we've all said, it ain't going to kill anything. Yep. Yeah. All right. Next question. Eric Hertz emailed us to say, I have a grandfather question that you might be able to answer. I am looking to add a temperature-controlled fermentation setup. My question is, do you do pressure transfers with the grandfather uh, fermenters, e.g. Dewey at all? Thank you. Uh, and if so, what is your current setup? Well, we just answered that. We, uh, Denny and I both use the glycol chillers that they're designed to work with, the grandfather units, and then they sell a little CO2 pressure transfer kit that can either rack out of the top via CO2 pressure or push the beer out of the bottom, which is what we both do. And, uh, but also very important, remember the grandfather conicals are not designed to take a lot of pressure. They will pop, I think, around what, three PSI? I thought I remembered one and a half, but I've, I just put two on mine the other day, no problem. Yeah. So that's what we do. 
Uh, John, what are you actually brewing these days? You said you're doing smaller batches. Yeah, I use uh, the Anvil Foundry, of course, um, and which is equivalent. You know, it's an all-in-one equivalent to the grandfather. Um, and then I I ferment again. Oh, just uh, like the um, either a, a bucket with a spigot or a stainless steel bucket with a spigot. You know, brew bucket or you know the Anvil uh, equivalent. There we go. All right. And then next question comes from McGarry on the HA forum. Name one thing in this hobby where close enough isn't good enough. And do you have any recipes that you make exactly the same every single time you make it? Uh, one thing where the hobby close enough isn't good enough, removing chloramine from your water. <laughs> yeah, right. Do it. Yeah. Uh, that, that to me is absolutely critical. If you serve me a beer that's been made with chlorinated water uh, that you haven't stripped it out of, uh, I will probably know. Um, and then do, do I have any recipes that you make exactly the same every time you make it? Yeah. My Saison, my Saison experimental, which I use to test the yeast strains. And oddly enough, I keep it the same because I want to not remove that from the tasting factor. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll agree on the chlorine chloramine because, you know, you don't want any of that stuff there. So when you say, well, you know, I got most of it out, so that's close. No, you don't want to do that. Plus it's uh, simple, stupid to get it out. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, especially knowing John's trick about using the ascorbic acid too. That is like uh, that is like astounding. Do I have recipes that I make exactly the same way every time? Yeah, yeah I have a lot of recipes. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say all of them, but uh, I have I have quite a number of recipes that I make every time because I've been brewing long enough to know what I like and why I like it. And so, why would I brew something that I wasn't sure about? There you go. Mr. Palmer. <laughs> yeah, for me, my recipes tend to be close enough as good enough. Um, I, I was really scratching my head to think if I've ever brewed exactly the same beer. Uh, I don't think I have. Um, it's, I, it seems like there's always a different ingredient, you know, this malt versus that malt, or slightly different proportion. Or something different. I don't know that I've ever brewed anything the same. Um, I mean, even even for my Dunkelbach, which is like my favorite uh, recipe, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever brewed that beer exactly the same. Uh, so, um, what, the, what I do consider close enough is not good enough. Um, understanding of water. and and it it feeds into the chloramine uh subject you're just talking about um you know that but also you know not understanding the effect of alkalinity uh versus hardness in your source water and what that does to the mash ph and very often mash ph can be close enough is good enough if you're off by a tenth not a big deal. Um, I think, you know, but if you are totally clueless about how all that works, then um, it's like, you know, it's like trying to work on your own car kind of thing. If you have no, have no concept of how a car works, um, you know, you're just, you're just causing trouble for yourself. Yeah. Well, this so, is where we always recommend to people, get a good water program that you trust. Like we use brewing water 
to, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and learn how it works and watch its impact on your water. You don't necessarily have to understand all the quantum mechanics going on behind the scenes. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. actually, John, speaking of which, you know, not quantum mechanics and water, although we've talked about that before. <laughs> um, you, you said one word in there in your answer about hardness. And I remember one point in time, uh, you had a very long rant about people talking about soft water versus hard water and how, from a oh, brewing yeah. perspective, that was a useless distinction. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Hardness, uh, hardness is, is the calcium and magnesium in the water. And uh, so often people hear that, oh, yeah, I've got hard water. I can't brew with it. No, you want to brew with hard water. Hard water is good. Calcium and magnesium are necessary for good beer clarity and good fermentation, good yeast fermentation, um, yeast health. I mean, um, soft water simply means that that water uh, doesn't have high levels of calcium and magnesium, and you may need to add them as brewing salts. This is not saying anything about the alkalinity. And, for example, when I was brewing over at Brad Smith's house, and he's like, yeah, we've got really hard water here. We've got a water softener on the house. And uh, I tested their water, and lo and behold, their hardness was coming into the house was actually fairly low. You know, um, I think it was like 40 ppm of calcium, which is, you know, not super low, but it's not, it's not high by any means. Um, what well, was high was their alkalinity, and that's where they were having their, you know, scale problems, you know, on the, the piping and so on. It's from a high alkalinity, which typical home water softening does not address. So that's why I go on my rant about brewing with softened water is because home water softeners remove the good stuff and leave the bad. Right, and usually yeah. add a ton and, of sodium. Yeah, and add a ton of sodium which, depending on the amount of calcium and magnesium they're actually removing, may not be that high, but still it's, it is something that you need to do the, the, the homework and read up on it and understand what is high, what is low, and what's not a problem. Right. There we go. Like I said, I've heard, I've heard this rant before. all right so one last technique question this actually comes from me i want to get your all's thought everybody's hot topic of the day is ai and particularly uh chat gpt and a couple people have been playing around with it on the aha forum and a couple other places to actually generate recipes because it turns out it can uh what are your thoughts why? Why? <laughs> yeah, there we go, John. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I enjoy that part. I, I don't, you know, I I find it uh, mildly interesting that it seems to be able to generate a a moderately decent recipe. Uh, somebody on the AHA forum even like had to do one and then said, "Oh, now go back and give me one with less crystal," and you know, and change things around and stuff. Cool, fine, great, but you know, yeah. I like formulating my own recipes. Well. One of the things I did, I asked it to formulate a Saison recipe. <laughs> Shock. Um, and I thought it was interesting, but it's definitely one of those places where, again, the problem with the, with the chat GPT tools as they exist right now is it looks mostly correct until you start to dig into it and go, wait, but you would never do that. Um, and so I, I thought it was interesting. 
Uh, but just something silly. John? Yeah, um, I, I've come, you know, I've always wondered, and Denny, may this cross your minds as well, you know, what is that new technology that's going to totally leave me in the dust and, you know, that I don't get? And I think we're, I think I'm starting to, to realize what that will be. Um, yeah, I, I have never experimented with uh, the, these chat AI programs. I don't know what they can do. Um, I read about them, you know, people using them to write, you know, papers for school and so on. Um, but I, 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 it makes me think back to when we were in high school and you would have your TI calculator that you would turn upside down and try to make it uh, write funny words. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's uh, it seems to be a, a not just a pure novelty. Um, I, I I guess I don't know enough about it to uh, appreciate that it might be actually useful. Yeah. Well, and for me, of course, it's fascinating because computer nerd, but also. My mom's an English teacher, my wife's an English teacher, and they have a lot of discussions happening around it right now because they have actually caught kids using it to write papers about something. Um, and Did you see the story recently that the same company that invented it has now uh, come up with uh, a way to detect it? Yep, absolutely. They, they, they've had that tool for a good long while now. I think they're just starting to promote it much more heavily because they realize that a lot of people are out there going, hey, wait a second. Um, but... Mm-hmm. It, it it is it, it it is an interesting concern. Uh, every time I've ever read anything from it, I kind of feel my mind slipping off of it, like it's a little too slippery and slick, and there's nothing for me to grab a hold of. Uh, I don't know if that makes any mm-hmm. sense, but I noticed that with the writing from it, and I also noticed that when I asked it the history of Cezanne, I think it cribbed from some of my articles. <laughs> well, it's not uh, impossible, you know. Yeah, no, because there's some. If, if that's if that's what it's designed to do, if it's just like a giant, yeah. coagulated Google search, you know, pretty, pretty know. much. All right, so there you go. AI is a recipe designer. Uh, I think the consensus answer is why. And now, yeah. time for a break. The sixth annual Pink Boots Blend from Yakima Chief Hops is now available in homebrewer sizing on our website. A portion of the sales will be donated to the Pink Boots Society in support of its mission to provide educational opportunities to women and non-binary individuals in the fermented and alcoholic beverage industry. This year's Pink Boots Blend consists of laurel, Equinot and HBC 586. The blend is a punchy bouquet of bright citrus and tropical fruits. Laurel brings in zesty lemon and floral notes, then Equinot and HBC 586 come in and further drive the tropical citrus, adding stone fruit and bubblegum. Place your order today at yakimachief.com slash pink dash boots dash blend and brew your own pink boots blend beer. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. 
From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental and let's give back together. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. And now it's time for your questions about styles and beer flavor type beery things. I don't know. It's all style questions. Give me a break. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't have any questions, actually. All right. And our first question comes from Ken Leonard, who uh, emailed us, said, We hear that Pilsner Urkel was the original Pilsner and first brewed in 1842, and that Vienna Lager was first brewed in around 1840. You sometimes see that Spaten or Weistefan or Hofbrau have been brewing beer since 1300, or in the case of Weistefan, 1040. Were those breweries making lagers all that time, or were they making ales? I know that lager yeast was able to be isolated in the mid-1800s, but were brewers making beer with it for all those centuries or for only the last 200 years? Uh, I'm going to preface this. I've reached out to a person who knows way more about German beer than I do, uh, but I will preface that my initial take on this was, yeah, they were probably brewing lager beers and not really understanding that, hey, the, uh, we were making a lager beer. That's just a term that, that eventually got assigned to it. But yeah, for the longest time, brewing ales, and then things morphed over time. And also, never believe a brewery when they say they've been around since 1040. <laughs> um, but I reached out to Andreas Krimar, who you know wrote the historic German and Austrian beers and a book about Vienna Lager. And he said, the whole question of how long lager has been brewed is a complicated one, especially when taking into account old breweries that have existed for several hundred years. Yes, it's true that pure bottom-fermenting yeast strains have only been isolated in the late 19th century, but the working hypothesis is that the yeast used and continuously repitched by lager breweries back then was just a mixed fermentation of multiple possibly related strains. In the case of Emil Christian Hansen, isolating yeast strains from the Carlsberg pitching yeast, he isolated, if I recall correctly, two separate strains. The practice at the time had been simply to repitch your yeast. For the longest time, it was not known what yeast really was, only that it aided in fermentation, and brewers had the experience that for different beer types, the yeast needed to be harvested differently. For bottom fermented beers, it was collected at the bottom of the fermenter, while for top fermenting beers, top crop during fermentation. I know of one early 19th century source that describes brewing in Bamberg and mentions that some brewers at the beginning of the brewing season brewed their first beer with top fermenting yeast, but it is not clear whether this is a true top fermenting yeast in the modern sense or just poison off another fermented beer from which, for which bottom fermenting yeast had been used. Uh, generally, though, the overall conditions of cold fermentation over the course of hundreds of years most likely have selected a more cryotolerant yeast strain, which specifically matches bottom fermenting yeast, and even if some cold-tolerant to top fermenting yeast would have survived in it, it probably would have not made that much of an impact, as the fermentation and lagering temperatures prior to refrigeration machines was way lower than today. For now, uh, for example, at one of the breweries owned by uh, Dreyer, who was the guy who invented Vienna Lager, 
Uh, temperatures in the fermentation rooms were 4 to 5 C, and the temperature of the fermenting beer never exceeded 7 to 8 C. These are temperatures that are tough even for modern Forbug-type lager yeast strains and some very strong selective pressure on pitching yeast. Ultimately, it's impossible to say exactly that this selection towards lager yeast really happened. We don't even know. The diversity of unpurified mixed-strain pitching yeast from before Emil, Emil Hansen made yeast strains grown from singular cells pop, pop, popular, as the practice replaced pretty much any mixed-strain yeast in lager brewing within a few years. And none of the old strains that didn't get isolated survived. So... There you go. That's uh, Andreas's uh, very long answer about it, but it pretty much falls right in line with what I was thinking, which is, yeah, it was happening, but it wasn't a pure thing. Right. So, any other thoughts? Who am I to argue with that? <laughs> and like I said, again, if a brewery tells you they've been open since 1040, check your wallet. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times, and particularly in Belgium, I know there's a lot of breweries that will claim very long histories. And like what it is, is like, oh, there was a brewery in the records on this site at XYZ year. And then we came in the 1900s and, and founded the brewery. So we're just claiming that there's always been a brewery here. <laughs> Except for something like yeah. Van Stoffen. Right. All right. So now our next e- emailed question comes from Stephen Reesby, who said, what happened to British Northern and Southern Brown Ale? Nerdy minds want to know. I would say the first thing is whether or not Northern and Southern English brown ales ever actually existed as a distinct thing. I was going to say that nothing happened to them. They're pretty much as unavailable and uh, ephemeral as they always have been. Yeah, if you go and you read uh, Martin's uh, website, he talks a lot about brown ale. And he and Ron Pattinson both kind of go on about it's a very weird history and it's very, very mixed up as to whether or not some of these things actually existed as a thing. So, yeah. uh, but I will say in general, what happened to brown ale? <sighs> People decided every beer needed to be two to five SRM. Um, that's what <laughs> happened. But if you listen to the last episode of the Brew Files, you'll hear all about how one American brewery has been making medals for a English brown, an American brown, and a Scottish ale. So malt beers haven't died completely. Mm-hmm. They're right. just damn hard to find. They can be. Uh, yeah. Good yeah. All right. Uh, Randall Marion emailed us to say, what are your thoughts about a potential new style called West Coast Lager? Similar to the way IPAs have been style-stretched, is there room for a more bitter hop-forward Pilsner done American style? Uh, Yeah, if it's good, why not? Um, I I assume that he means something like a a German Pils, but with American hops. Uh, In that case, uh, yeah, let me me taste it, then I'll decide. Well, I remember you had this discussion with him on Facebook, and, and you were... Not a fan of the overloading of the term Pilsner. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, sometimes uh, if you're going to change a beer, it's so different, you just need to give it a new name. Uh, uh, you know, an American Pilsner, I guess, I mean, why not? There's there's German Pilsner, there's uh, Czech Pilsner, so I guess there they could be an American Pilsner too, which I'm imagining as uh, something in, in the bitterness range of a German Pilsner, but with a American hops. Uh, yeah, that might work. And if you want to call it that, okay with me. John, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I'm i not exactly sure. I, I have not tasted or otherwise seen this West Coast American lager. Uh so I'm not exactly sure what we're, what we're talking about. But um, if it is, you know, um, a lager brewed 
stronger and with with more hops, um, not an IPL, uh, <laughs> then, yeah, I mean, and to some extent, Pete's Wicked Lager was that style. Uh, at least is, is my understanding of what they're talking about. Um, that was brewed with Liberty Hops, um, which, you know, American grown uh, land race kind of thing. Um, but a very, very refreshing beer. Um, and, yeah, it, you know, let's say we brew it with Cascade or brew it with um, uh, what would be another good American hop to throw in there. Um, well, I guess one of the new ones. Yeah, I mean, I think you could definitely do something uh, fruity, but I don't know about y'all. I mean, I haven't really seen people trying to push. Like, every IPL seems to now be called a cold, uh, cold IPA. Uh, referencing our earlier yeah. discussion. Um, I'm absolutely fine with the idea of a West Coast lager, and what I've noticed here in L.A. at least is since we've had a lot of breweries since COVID times really kind of expanding their lager game, I've noticed a lot of the breweries around here, they make something that they'll call a German Pilsner just because they want to have extra hops in it. Not uh, not necessarily that it's actually a German, uh-huh. a German Pilsner. I'm all for it. Uh, Jack's Abbey over in Massachusetts, where they're in Framingham, they they are very famously a lager-focused brewery. And th- when I talk to them on the podcast, one of the things that they claimed is part of the reason that they love doing hoppy lagers is they feel that lager yeast allows you to get a more complete expression of hop character. And, yeah. And okay. without necessarily having to load up a ton more hops in the kettle. Uh, their argument being that, you know, because the lager yeasts aren't as fruity, aren't as expressive, and also tend to ferment drier, you get more room to show right. showcase hop flavor. So mm-hmm. that's what I think. I'm all for it. I don't care about style extension at all, generally. Once, yeah, again, it, n- uh, once again, accepting the word sm- smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, our final style question comes from Alexander Gashti over there in Tampa. And I'm going to have to say this is mostly going to be for you, John, I believe. Uh, can you discuss the growth of craft beer in Europe? I'd like to understand the preference of young Europeans, say 25 to 35, for craft beer in the context of styles of beers their parents enjoy and we aspire to replicate when we homebrew in North America. What you got? Uh, what you thinking? Well, I I have not traveled extensively in Europe. I've been to uh, basically Norway and Spain. Mm-hmm. So, um, not really sure how to answer that. The what I, what I think is most interesting, and here I'm pulling from my experiences in South America as well as Norway and Spain. Uh, is that they are always looking to the United States? What are we doing? you know, in terms of beer style. Um, and they're, you know, as soon as we developed hazies, they were all over it. Mm. Um, so I think the homebrewing scene in Europe is much less than it is in the States um, and the U.K. Um, fairly prevalent in, in Scandinavian countries because the alcohol taxes are so mm-hmm. high. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, I think in general, it's the kind of the same situation as here where we're, there is so much beer 
on the shelves readily available that the drive to homebrew is not what it once was. Right. Um, Why take hours out of your day when you can just walk next door? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I haven't, I haven't traveled in Europe extensively, but I can uh, give a, a view from uh, having traveled in, in Belgium and Netherlands. Um, and I think that the question number one starts off with what might be a misconception, which is that people will keep enjoying the same kind of beer that their parents enjoyed. Uh, we certainly have not seen that to be the case here in the United States. The difference is that uh, while our parents enjoyed something like, you know, uh, North American industrial lagers, the uh, people in Europe were uh, drinking beers that we as homebrewers consider more flavorful and maybe in a way even more sacrosanct, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, these these are beer styles that we're trying to emulate because they're historical and, and they're different and they're good. And then for the people who live there, they're just like the beers they always grew up with. So when they see something yeah. like American IPAs, I mean, both in Belgium and Netherlands, I saw a huge amount of American-style IPAs. And there are going to be people who dis IPAs who are going to say, oh, why would they do that? But you have to look at it from their point of view. Yeah. What's common and what's not. Yeah. yeah. What's, 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 what's new? new and hip and different. I mean, you know, it's, it's the yeah. same, same reason that we get all these uh, smoothie beers and stuff because that is, appeals to people because they're new and different and not what was there before. And the difference is that what was there before in Europe are the beers that, uh, that we revere. Well, and in my experience in traveling, particularly in Belgium, one thing I noticed was that for the average person, they don't even think about their beer, their beer culture. Beer's just a thing, and it's not. Yeah. It doesn't have the same level of, of obsession in the way that we do. So yeah, I, maybe I, I have a good friend in the Netherlands oh, yeah. who is almost as obsessed. Uh, Andre, who is on the podcast. Yeah, no, I, I know, but they, again, that's because there's always going to be dummies like us. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm, right. but I mean, like to the average uh, to the average Belgian person I ran into and talked to. Beer was stellar or Jubilee. You know, they, they, like, they didn't know a lot more. And so I would be curious. Of course, we're all sort of grasping from our own experience. So if any of our listeners out there in Europe want to chime in and give their experience on what they've seen, feel free. Yeah. Teach us something, please. Please, please do. All right. And that's the end of our style questions. Now it's time to get into the random grab bag of miscellaneous. So let's go through these real quick. Uh, Tom, a.k.a. Zymont, uh, from Nashville, emailed us to say, what is the biggest boneheaded mistake you've ever made over the years? A bonehead event that turned into a teachable moment for the rest of us. John Palmer. <laughs> Not using uh, rice hulls in a classic American Pilsner where I decided to say, oh, what the heck, pour in the rest of the cornmeal as well. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I actually saw that coming, John. <laughs> Corn goop. Yeah. yeah. All right. Dincenzo? Uh, mine was with a, a German Pilsner also. Uh, I got all done chilling. I was about ready to put it in the fermenter. And I turned around, and I saw every single hop addition laying on the table <laughs> next to me. 
I, I, I bagged them all <laughs> up ahead of time, write the time of the edition on the bag, all that kind of stuff. And I had just totally spaced out adding any hops whatsoever. Uh, I poured in a couple gallons more water, did a 30-minute boil, added the hops, and it turned out to be a stunningly good beer. There you go. Uh, and I think mine would be the time I tried to make a traditional porter, and we just talked about this in the, the Lee Lord episode, tried to make a traditional porter, third pale, third amber, third brown malt, without the realization that modern brown malt is something radically different. And I ended up making mm-hmm. a beer that was so totally astringent and undrinkable that I got it into the keg. I kept hoping it would be okay. And I finally just pitched Britannomyces into it just to see if it would do anything. And you know what? A year later, I had a terrible beer that tasted like Britannomyces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That's like my uh, my experience with the Dortmunder. I don't know if you remember, John, but it was so bad. I actually oh, yeah. sent some down to you, and you replied that it tasted like Bartles and James passion fruit wine cooler. But since I lived yeah. in a town with a lot of college girls, that might not be a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I laundered that fruity. thing for a year. I dry hopped it. I did everything before it ended up getting dumped out on my lawn. <laughs> yeah, I think so. What I mean, I've been brewing since '99. Uh, Denny, you've been about the the same or just slightly longer. '98, March 19th will be 25 years. There you go. And John, when did you first start brewing? Um, it was around 1990. All right. So that is a whole hell of a lot of years of brewing. And I think we could make an entire two-hour show just talking about dumb, <laughs> dumb stuff we've done. Yeah, right. <laughs> Except yeah. we don't want to let everybody in on all that stuff. Yep. But, yeah, it definitely. And, by the way, I, and I know uh, Tom wrote this and uh, wrote this without, like, it being like, hey, you know, tell on yourself. Uh, I will. I will say, never forget – you learn a hell of a lot more when you screw up than when you do something mostly right. Oh, yes. I agree. All right. Our next question comes from Leslie Chase in Washington. Hi, Leslie. Uh, who said, I'm often fascinated by the fixation towards expensive brewing gear and an exceptional attention to details in brewing. In your opinion, as a home brewer, are these things more about personal preference? Or does the quality and cost of the equipment make better beer and does making good beer require that high attention to detail? Me personally, I call myself a ghetto brewer. Much of my brewing gear is homemade, and I believe in that's close enough. Well, I think, Leslie, if you've been listening through the whole show, you'll realize that there's a lot of places where we say, that's good enough. And for me, the expensive brewing gear, some of that is boys and their toys. Uh, and some of it is, like, for instance, with the grandfathers and the other all-in-ones, spending a little bit of money to reclaim some of my time. Yeah, that's where I was going to go, too. Um, I have a bunch of ribbons that I won when I was brewing, like, in a kettle on a propane burner and fermenting in a bucket and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you can absolutely make really good beer with minimal equipment. I think that maybe that forces you to pay a little bit more attention to details, um, but still, you don't have to, like, go overboard on it. What I find about in having, like, uh, an all-in-one and temperature-controlled fermenters and all of that stuff is it makes the brewing easier. And if it's easier, it's more fun, and fun is all I care about in brewing anymore. Uh, the, the beer is secondary to my enjoyment of the process. 
and Mr. Ice Tea mixed with lemonade? <laughs> um, I would say temperature controlled fermentation is my probably my top priority when it comes to uh, investing, you know, money into brewing equipment. Um, yeah, as Denny says, you can get by with the the cheap burner, um, the kettle, the fermenter, and so on. But having a temperature-controlled fridge or something extremely similar to that just takes so many headaches and and, and bad batches out of the equation. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it really improves your enjoyment because um, I think I think a, a, a good fermentation is the most critical aspect of beer. beer yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So if you can, if you can, you know, ensure that your fermentation is going to be at a consistent temperature and remove all the problems that can happen uh, as a result of not having that, then your enjoyment of brewing is going to be much more. Yeah, um, I will just say, I think the lesson I always take away is the guy who taught me how to brew all-grain beer, Doug King. Yeah, he used to be able to make his beer Dugweiser, which was an homage to Budweiser, and using two plastic buckets with nail holes drilled in the bottom of it, right? You know, the old Zap-Pap water system, and a stovetop pot. He used to be able to get within about 1% of Anheuser-Busch's spec for Budweiser. Actually had it analyzed by Anheuser-Busch a couple times. So if he can do that, you don't need all the fancy gear in the world. Sometimes the fancy gear just makes things easier. Yep, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Our next miscellaneous question comes from a good buddy, Jeff Rankert, on the HA forum. He said, if I ever decide to go to an all-in-one system to make brewing easier, what features should be considered? What are those features in order of importance? What systems are your favorites? Mr. Palmer. I, I like the Anvil Foundry for two reasons. One, um, the pump is external, even though it's, a, you know, it's an optional feature. You have to buy it extra, but it, the total cost of the Anvil is, is, is quite reasonable. But having an external pump means that if and when it clogs, you simply close the valve, take it apart, clear the clog, and then put it back into service without without messing with the batch. The batch is still sitting there at temp. Uh, you're just not recirculating. Okay. Uh, and I will say for myself, uh, obviously Denny and I are both grandfather uh, people, uh, and I will say that the most important feature of an all-in-one is that it's easy to use and will make you brew more often. Yeah. I, I, but I think that's going to yeah. be true of most all-in-ones. Well, except for um, I mean, like some of the ones out there that we've that we played played with, and I'm not going to name names. You know, like right. the control screens are wonky, or the controls are are placed poorly, or sometimes the build construction is a little less than ideal. Um, so find one that where the controls work well for you, and I would say that's going to be about ninety percent of your battle. So, like one of the things I like with a grandfather is uh, my controls can be on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's true of a lot of systems. Yep. Um, yeah. I've you know, and I I've had a chance to try a few different all-in-ones. I've not had a chance to try any of the Anvil equipment, which I'm sure is exceptionally well built and and works great. Um, 
I have, most of my experience has, in the last few years has been with the various grandfather systems. Uh, I had, I have both a, a 110 and a 220 volt G30. I have a G40 and a G70 as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Of all of those, I would have to say that the G40 is my favorite system, and here's why. The build quality is extremely good. This thing is built like a rock. Uh, it does exactly what it says it's going to do. It doesn't have a center tube to deal with like a lot of the other systems do. I get consistent mash efficiency out of it. Uh, it heats quickly and thoroughly, uh, and, you know, it just makes my life extremely pleasurable when I'm brewing. So I would say, Can you Jeff, bring up something? To, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, the, the 220 is an important feature. Yeah, it uh, is. It's a discussion. Yeah. yeah. Um, I started with a, a grandfather G30 on 110, and I liked it. But, man, it just took forever to heat water. Now with the uh, G40 on 220, I can do temperature steps, and it's more quickly than using a propane burner when I was doing that kind of thing. I mean, it just just really cruises through those temperatures. So, you know, all in all, I think that what I would advise everybody to do that's considering an all-in-one, look at the different systems. Talk to people who have them. Uh, for instance, the G40 is not by any means the least expensive system out there. It probably is one of the more expensive systems. But I consider it to be worth every cent of the money if you can afford it. But talk to people that have them. Decide what's right in your price range and, and go for it. Because my opinion is that any all-in-one is going to increase your brewing pleasure. There you go. Yeah, yeah, they they really do. The small footprint, the easy cleanup, um, the the temperature the temperature temperature change capability of them yeah. make them really convenient to brew on. Yeah, I have, I have my G forty just sitting on a furniture dolly, so I can wheel it wheel it around places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, and my, mine is always in place uh, underneath underneath the hoist that I use for lifting the grain basket. Well, yeah, but you, I have. Fancy. <laughs> well, it's because I started with the G70, and you have to have a hoist for that if you're brewing alone. Right. I have the the, the five-gallon uh, foundry, which is sized for like a two-and-a-half or three-gallon batch, mm-hmm. um, and that's a 110 system. And for that batch size, 110 works fine. Yeah, right. It's 20, 20 minutes to reach a boil kind of thing. Um but, yeah, if you're going to do 5-gallon batches or 10-gallon batches, then, yeah, you definitely need 220. Right. And, and the, the G70, that's, that's not hard to do. No, it's nearly not. The G70 is actually a 15-gallon system. And uh, I found uh, an electrician in my homebrew club and was able to trade him some spare hops and various equipment for wiring up a 220 line for me. Yeah, and, of course, if you, do have, if you are restricted to the 110 and you can't do 220, uh, there are people who make other immersion heaters, uh, for instance, like uh, what's a big one, uh, Hot Rod, the, the Hot Rod uh, yeah. brew immersion. Oh, yeah. uh, and you can always do what I did for a long time when I had just 110, which is I had the G30 plugged into one outlet, 
uh, you know, one circuit and ran an extension cord. Yes, I know, not the safest thing to do with yeah, a heater. Don't, don't say that to me. Yep. Uh, ran a high gauge extension cord uh, to another circuit and used that to power the, the immersion heater. Uh, and then that way I could effectively do 220, but with a lot less power or with a lot less control uh, than I get out of plugging into a 220 outlet. So there you go. Right. Right. All right. We're winding up, and our next miscellaneous question comes from Hazed and Confused, who emailed us to say, somehow it got into our private thread, uh, emailed <laughs> us to say, Chill Haze, what is it? What causes it? How can I prevent it? Can I fix it? And if so, how? I've heard that if you keep the beer cold enough for a long enough time, the haze will drop out. I've also heard that it can cause it. Help me. I'm so confused. Signed, Hazed and Confused in no tie. Who could that be? I don't know. <laughs> Mr. Palmer, what do you guys say about chill haze? Okay, well, chill haze is a protein polyphenol haze, um, and polyphenols are large molecules uh, that, as they oxidize and thereby polymerize, get even bigger and turn into tannins. So um, we have we have this class of molecule called we call polyphenols, and um, these will bind with uh, amino acids um, and proteins, uh, not amino acids, but they bond to the proline amino acid that is typically on the outside of many mid-size proteins same size proteins that are contribute to ad retention and foam. And when these molecules are fairly small, relatively speaking, they manifest as chill haze. That is, as the beer cools uh, and activity slows, the, the activity is such that these proteins and polyphenols can link up and then be thereby get big enough that they become visible as haze. Uh, his comment that as if you leave the beer cold enough, long enough to drop out is uh, accurate. Um, and that is because uh, with time, these polyphenols will continue to oxidize. Now, and I'm, ta- I'm not talking about oxygen. I'm talking about chemical oxidation. They will chemically react and agglomerate and get bigger and bigger. And as they get bigger and bigger, they get more visible and get enough mass where they do settle out. So um, I, would, I would go so far to say that um, in under, with, with most conditions, most beers, haze is inevitable. But we can do things to minimize haze, you know, reducing oxygen going into the package, um, oxygen itself being a great precursor to many oxidation reactions. Uh, we can also decrease the uh, proline in the uh, malt. Um, there are some malts that are, are, are uh, less, less uh, haze active um, that have been made. And then you have enzymes like the, the Clarex that uh, inhibit the or dismantle the proline uh, so that the, there's, it, they don't bond 
to the proline sites. And that also helps to that same that same class of proteins is also the proteins that tend to affect uh, gluten sensitive people. And so that's why those beers are also referred to as being gluten reduced. So is is there something you can do to avoid getting it? Yeah, um, a good hot break is is uh, beneficial. Um, boiling your hops um, adds more polyphenol uh, to the to the boil. You get a better hot break. You take more of that polyphenol out of solution. Um, and this is why hazy IPAs are hazy is because you're not boiling the hops. You're just throwing them into the whirlpool or doing hot steeping or dry hopping afterwards. And that proline, there's a lot more proline hanging around in the beer. Sorry, I'm wrong word. More polyphenol hanging around in the beer uh, that combines uh, to form haze. Whereas if you would boil the hops, that polyphenol protein reaction would happen in the boil, settle as the hot break, and be taken out of solution. Okay. Okay. Well, on behalf of Hazed and Confused in No Tie, thank you very much. If, if only we could find Hazed and Confused. Yeah, right. Where is that guy? <laughs> yeah. All right. Final question. Final question. Final question. And this one comes from the AHA forum, and I had to include this when I saw this one. <laughs> uh, from the username Red Rocker, who said, What's the difference between a hamster and a gerbil? And there were follow-ups from other posters. What beer goes best with gerbil? What's the best way to add my dry gerbil additions without introducing oxygen? And does terroir really make a difference? Can you tell the difference between a Yakima gerbil and a Michigan gerbil? Um, <laughs> this, is, this is what happens when I see any of those jokers. We'll take questions on anything. Yep. Uh, well, and I will just say, uh, what's the difference between a hamster and a gerbil? They are both rodents, but they are parts of completely different uh, subgenres and actually all the way back to the, the family level. Uh, so they are two very different critters, even though they're both uh, rodentias. Uh, gerbils are actually more docile and friendly and are less likely to bite than a hamster. Uh, they also have long tails compared to very short stubby parts in hamsters. And where gerbils are active during the daytime... Uh, hamsters prefer nighttime activity, including biting your face. Uh, so, so you're more of a hamster than a gerbil. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, gerbils are banned here in California, for instance, because they are desert dwellers, and there is a worry about them getting out and out-competing local populations of desert rodents. So overall, in general, outside of that, gerbils seem to be a much friendlier pet, and hamsters are kind of assholes. <laughs> so you are. <laughs> You're a gerbil, I'm a hamster, right? Well, I'm the nighttime guy, so I'd be the hamster. Uh, okay. So there we go. That's that's the difference between a, a hamster and a gerbil. Yes, you can tell the difference between a Yakima gerbil and a Michigan gerbil. Uh, the Michigan gerbils will be colder. Um, <laughs> best way to dry your, your dry gerbil edition, you very sick person, but CO2. <laughs> um, and then what beer goes best with gerbil? The one in your glass. Oh, there we go. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, remember, the next time you're brewing, uh, keep your dry gerbils in mind. 
Okay, that's enough of that stuff. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing, and especially thank you to John Palmer for your time and graciousness in joining us. Man, it has been so much fun. My pleasure. My oh, pleasure. Oh, great, man. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, which Drew has just about migrated to the new server. Hmm. So you can go there and start finding a whole bunch of great information and old podcasts. Yeah, tell me the things Don't- I've missed. Yeah, I'll do that. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. Uh, I, you can find me on the uh, AHA discussion forum in the uh, Beer Garden Brew House and uh, a number of other places, especially on Facebook. Because John say. hangs out on Facebook too sometimes. You can find any any place where people share opinions about brewing. That's right, because they'll always be wrong, and I'll have to correct them. There you go. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and believe me, we love that too, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget that you can always give us a call and shoot us an email, leave us a text message at 626-765-1L. That's 626-765-1253. And if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com. And he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Hey.